If you have your Bible, we are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I don't think I've gotten to teach or lead praise while these were open. That's going to be hard for me. That is so pretty. Right? Yeah. Well, um, Genesis 1, God creates, and everything he creates, he says it's good. He says it over and over and over again. And then he makes man, and he tells man that you need to take dominion over it and subdue it. If everything's good, what needs to be subdued? There's something evil. There's something bad in that garden. And you and I know it's the snake that shows up and tempts Adam and Eve, and they fall into sin. And so Genesis 1 to Revelation 19, the Bible has this overarching theme that's just screaming at you and I that the world is a battleground, not a playground, that we are at war. And we need to be mindful of that and have that attitude. And so Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians. We're 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So there's a lot of history and backstory if you haven't been with us. But the idea is this. Paul has planted this church. Things were going really well at this church. It was, it was going strong. Paul left this church and then wolves moved in. They started subverting the gospel. They started making their own plans. They started affirming people's sin and celebrating it. And now Paul is saying, hey, we need to turn this around. We need to flip this over. The wolves who have come in have said things about Paul. And Paul is going to make reference to some of those things, those names, those labels that they put on him. And so Paul is saying, I'm going to return to Corinth. I'm going to face these people. And I don't want to have a showdown when I arrive. But if it comes to that, I will. Instead, he's hoping that these people will repent and that he can come in grace and kindness and not have to have a, well, a showdown. And so let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, which this is really just a quick, interesting thing. When Paul talks about Christ, he's often talking about the glory of Christ. But here he has these, this meekness and this gentleness. And I think sometimes we have this idea of this wrong idea of what meek means. When you think meek, sometimes you think hippie Jesus, you know, really just calm and gentle and, and just tiny and pacifist. What meek really means is it's power and control. And what you and I know about Jesus, who Jesus is, is Jesus is the king of all creation who set aside his crown to be a servant to the father's love to redeem all people to himself, that he had the full power of God, but decided to set it aside. It's power and control. It's that's meekness. And Paul is saying, I'm entreating you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, that he's got power. He's got authority given to him from God. Using Jesus as his example, I'm going to entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. When he's with him, he's mild, he's calm, he's peaceable. But when he's away, his writings, they seem very aggressive. Hey, you need to kick people out of the church. You need to prioritize prophet prophesizing over tongues. No more tambourines. I may have added that last part. But he's, 
He's throwing out, like, he's pretty aggressive when he writes to the Corinthians. And when he's away, it's, he seems, or when he's present, he's very calm and he's very kind with them and gentle with them. Something that he's being accused of by the Corinthians is, hey, this guy, he's, he's not how he actually acts. He seems one way to you when he writes, but he's a completely different guy in person. And he continues in verse two. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. He's saying, hey, I don't wanna come harshly with you. I've been writing harshly about big, serious things that need to be addressed, that have to change so that the gospel can spread, so that the kingdom of God can't be tarnished with these mixed views of, oh, you can live however you like, and God is just gonna affirm you in that. No, that's not what we're gonna do. He's saying, I'm gonna be bold to you. I don't wanna come with boldness, but I sure can. Can Paul really make that claim? He can come with boldness? There's this killer chapter in Acts chapter 13, verse seven, where there's this heretic. And here's what it reads. This heretic, he was with the proconsul whose name was Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. That's a cool title, just saying. The Bible throws that one out, man of intelligence. There's worse things you could be labeled as. Who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So there's a man, a heretic, who's standing against Paul from telling this man the truth about God, telling him about the gospel, telling him about the plans that God has for his life. And so here's what Paul does in gentleness and meekness. Here's what he does. Verse nine. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. There's just so many great titles in this chapter for people. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time immediately missed and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, oh, I can come in boldness. I don't wanna come in boldness. I wanna come in meekness, power that's in control. I wanna come in gentleness. You need to receive the letters, the writings that I've written to you. There are some people who are going to have the opportunity between the time they receive this letter and the time I show up to repent. And if not, oh, I can show boldness. Verse three, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. For you and me, the real battles are spiritual battles. That's where the real victories are won. And the problem is for you and I is we often get stuck in the flesh and we get frustrated, irritated, irritable. I cast insults back and forth. I get heated. I ruminate on things. I end up causing a lot of my issues to become fleshly when we're not supposed to be people that wrestle against flesh 
and blood. And if you and I are mindful of that, if we confine the war to the spirit realm, we already have an advantage. We have an advantage over the enemy because he's always gonna try to draw you and me into the flesh and do things fleshly because he knows Jesus has already overcome and had victory over all spiritual things. And so if you and I can confine our battles to the spiritual world like we're supposed to, the enemy has no area to try and claim victory over us. If Paul will say in a different church, put on the whole armor of God. Here's what he writes in Ephesians 6.10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Why put on the whole armor of God? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We have a real enemy who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a real bad guy. The bad guy is not your spouse or your kids or your boss or your neighbor. The real enemy that we have, he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He's active. He's real. And we need to be armored up against him and prepared for him. And so it continues, verse 12 in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, shoot, that's quite the lineup against me. Because a high school graduate from Hinn Valley versus rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, I think I might lean on the Hinn Valley guys dropping the ball. He's not making it well, right? But verse 13 says this, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Man, what if we just put those shoes on? Next time we were irritable, frustrated with our spouse or a boss or a coworker, I thought about the shoes I'm wearing today are the readiness given by the gospel of peace, that I'm quickly able to move towards peace that's given to me through the gospel. Like through Jesus, through the work that he's done, I've been made right between myself and God. Maybe I could fix this situation between me and this person. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. One of the strongest weapons that you and I have against the enemy is prayer. And it's so funny because it's often that's the thing that we forget the most. When all else fails, we'll pray. Which is funny because if we pray first, all else probably wouldn't fail. There's this brilliant book when I first started working here, I found it. Someone donated uh, all of these old books they had in storage. They were a pastor for a long, long, long time and they're retiring. And so they brought a trailer with all their old books and they dumped them off at the office one day. And so I took all of those books and I put them in one of the pastor's offices, just walled off the door. It was awesome. And one of the ones that didn't fit, I took home with me and it was called Lord Teach Us How to Pray. And I was thinking, oh, I'll read this. And I remember I'm reading it and the opening chapter is just saying the average believer does not even begin to comprehend the nuclear 
bomb that they have access to. That we have the king of all creation who has decided that through the work of Jesus, he wants us to approach him as father, that we're his adopted kids, that we can go to him with boldness in our time of need, as Hebrews says, and we can pray to the creator and sustainer of the universe. We can go to that guy with all of our problems, the tiny ones and the big ones, that when we're under spiritual attack, we can go to the guy who's ultimately in control to get them to flee and to leave and be gone. And this, this book was just writing out, the enemy loves it when believers undervalue prayer because they have no idea the kind of access and authority that they have in prayer, the power that comes with prayer. And so this is the kind of God the Bible describes you and I having. You and I, we have relationships that go into problems and they go upside down and they go crazy and they start to fall apart. And we think, well, that relationship can never be fixed because there's so much back history. And there was that Thanksgiving where people got a little crazy and things got said and an EpiPen had to be pulled out. This is a little specific for something that happened with my family, but things get crazy, right? And you go, everything is upside down right now. Relationships are gone. The kind of God you and I serve, Joel 2, 25 says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten, the things, the years. What can you not get back? Time. You cannot get time back. The years that the locusts have eaten, the things that these devouring bugs that would come and just destroy crops, destroy livelihoods, destroy hopes and dreams, those things that come and just eat everything away, He's the kind of God who can restore the years the locusts have eaten, the things that are completely lost and irreparable and gone for you and me. Our God is the kind of God who can fix that. He can fix every relationship. He can fix every issue that we think, oh, that just is a burned bridge. It's gone. What about when we're upside down in our finances? Do we have a kind of God who can help us with that? Psalm 50 says, every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, does Jesus have any problem with resources or money? No way. It's all his. This idea that we have, a, our monetary system is based on a rock. Jesus goes, cool, I'm gonna pave my entire kingdom with that rock. It's gonna be awesome. I'm not worried about that rock. Colossians 1.17 says, he is, before, he, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The very atoms in your body, Jesus is holding together at this very minute. And you have access to that God, unlike anyone in the Old Testament would ever even be able to comprehend. They would have to go and make themselves right and go to a priest, and the priest would go and talk to God at the temple, and there was a place where God dwelt. Where does God dwell now? He dwells in you and me. We have unparalleled access to the king. And Paul is saying, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, and you've got the biggest spiritual power, the access to him right now. How can you and I not be praying more? Super convicting for me. We have unlimited access to that kind of God, but so often I use it as a last resort. Chad Hansen a few years ago was teaching at the men's study, and he just shared that he was doing dishes, and his wife was talking to him, and he just felt himself getting irritated. As a spouse, have you ever felt yourself being there? Spouse is not doing anything wrong, but you're just getting irritated. And he said, in that moment, he realized, my wife is not doing anything wrong. This is totally a spiritual thing. And so he stopped and he said, hey, can you and I pray real quick? I just feel like I'm under attack. 
And I would just love for you and I to get to talk to Jesus together. So they prayed, Jesus, would you just bring a peace that, that passes understanding to this room? Will you just cause me to be kind and gentle? And will you help me love my wife the way that you love me? And he said, the whole evening changed. I was not irritable anymore. I couldn't be irritable anymore. I got perspective. I, put, I brought Jesus, I brought the gospel into my relationship and into my frustrations. All of a sudden, if there was a spiritual presence that was promoting anger or frustration, that thing had to flee. Man, for you and me, I think we need to take advantage of that. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Paul's in a situation where there are people in a church who are telling lies. And he goes, okay, great. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Let's not villainize and demonize those people. If they don't repent, I will handle it. In the meantime, we need to be a praying people that say, let truth abound. Let truth come out. We need to be praying people that when we have inner relationships that are fraying because of gossip or people saying things that just aren't true or things that they think are true, but they don't have the whole story, let's be a praying people. Let's get God involved with it. Let's realize it's a spiritual battle 99% of the time. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against actual, an actual enemy who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. Our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds is how he ends that verse. What are strongholds? It's something fortified. It's something established. It's something that's not easily conquered. It, you can't just seem to break it. It could be an addiction, a habit, a desire. It's, it's always just kind of in the back of your mind. So there's a few months ago, maybe a month ago, time goes by and so weird. And especially when it hasn't been sunny in forever. And we were at the coast, and I was feeling irritable because I'm a dad at the coast with my kids, and it's not sunny. And I think, that's not fair to my wife, and that's not fair to my kids. So I, I go into a store, and I see something there that I've never done. I've never done this before in my life. There's a Red Bull. I think, that'll probably make me happy. At least put a little kick in my step. Dude, it brought color back to life, all right? And then I've had multiple Red Bulls a day since then just to get me normal. You know what I mean? Like I think it, there was cocaine or something in there. And it just, I hit this high and I couldn't get it back. And then my wife and I on Monday, she had a serious talk with me. We're not having any more Red Bulls. And we're on the honor system right now. It is so hard. That is a stronghold, right? That is a, I think about it, guy, a Red Bull would really help right now. You know, it's 4 p.m. on Monday. I got to teach. No, we're on the honor system. No, but there's real things. That's trivial. Come on. But there's real things. There's real issues. You call them besetting sins. There's things that we struggle with since we were a child, since we were young, that are just constantly in the back of our heads. They're, they're habits. They're things that we always turn to, come back to. We think, oh, I've broken that. It's not a big deal. That doesn't tempt me anymore. And then we still somehow find ourselves falling into that thing. It could be a foothold for the enemy, as Ephesians puts it, but a stronghold. The, the weapons that you and I have have the divine power to destroy strongholds. The things that cause you and me to feel trapped because of our history, the things that we constantly engage in, the things that I really, really want to do, the Holy Spirit has the weapons that can destroy these things. The old man, the attitude you and I are supposed to have when those things come to mind, the old man has died that Jesus has taken the old man, the part of me that had those habits, the desires that I need to do this, and he's killed that man. He's died and been buried with Jesus, and now I have a new man with new habits and new life 
And so the enemy will often come and tempt you saying, oh, this is just who you are. No, that guy died a long time ago. That guy died when I accepted Jesus. And now I'm a new man and I don't have to fall for those things. I don't have to live that way. I don't have to continue that path. And so verse five, Paul continues, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So where do sins start? Because sometimes when we think about sins, at least when I think about sins, I always think about something that you do, right? Something that you engage in. You tell a lie, you steal, you break something, you don't tell them, you break a promise, you gossip. Like I, I often think about lies as some, or sins as something that you engage in, but sin where it really starts is it starts in your thoughts. It starts in your thought life. I mean, Jesus even says, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder. Well, if you've been angry with your brother without cause, you've had that thought of just, I'm enraged against this person. I'm so ticked at them. I call them a fool. Okay, great. Now you've sinned in your heart. But that's where the sin starts. It's a heart problem. It starts in your mind. Okay, well, hey, good job. You haven't committed adultery. When you look at another being, another human being with lust in your eyes, with lust begins forming in your thoughts, it's a heart issue. And so for God, it goes, okay, you've already done it. It's as if you've already committed adultery with that person. Paul's saying, you and I, we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Well, man, how in the world do you do that? Because let's say it's not like anger and it's not like lust, but it is actually depression or anxiety. And that you, this has been an actually super hard season and the sun is out and that's great, but it's not fixing everything entirely. How do I take every thought captive because I just get so bummed out and everything just feels so heavy all of the time? How do I actually do that? This is a conversation I just had with someone recently. What I think you do is you take another one of Paul's writings. It's Philippians chapter eight, where he says this. Philippians chapter eight, Philippians four, verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. So first you start going down a list. Is this thing I'm thinking about, is it true? Is this thing that's bumming me out, that's making me angry, is this a true thing? Okay, it's not true. Okay, I'm not gonna think about that anymore. And you have to do the conscious effort of I'm gonna push that thing out of my mind and I'm gonna choose to think about something that's true. Whatever is honorable, thinking lustily about another person, is that honorable, is that just, is that pure, is it lovely, is it commendable? No. So I'm gonna make the conscious effort, I'm gonna push those things out, I'm gonna, in obedience to Jesus, I'm gonna take my thoughts captive. If there's anything worthy of praise, if it's excellent, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and here's the big thing. And the God of peace will be with you. If you're feeling anxiety and depression, you want the God of peace to be with you. And he gives this conditional statement, if you do these things, the God of peace will be with you. I think we need to go through our thought life and go, okay, is this true? Is it honorable? Is it just? Is it pure, lovely, commendable? Is it excellent? Is it worthy of praise? And I'm gonna make a conscious effort out of obedience to Jesus. I'm gonna take my thoughts captive and think on these things. And I think what will happen is you'll start to see the chemical reactions of your brain change, that you're going to stop being disposition towards the anxious thoughts and the depressed thoughts because you're going to be taking your thoughts captive and forcing yourself to think about 
the pure, the good, the just, the excellent, the praiseworthy, that your brain is going to want to start giving you the things that you keep making it focus on anyway. And as you do that, I think you start to take every thought captive, as Paul is telling you and me to do. And so verse seven, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so are also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I can come and build you up and I can come and destroy, Paul is saying. Sometimes in order to build up, in order to raise something up, what do you have to do? You have to destroy parts of it. Some parts are rotten and some parts are bad. My, my dad and I were working in this bathroom and there was a part of the tile that kind of come loose and my dad kind of messed with it a little and it fell off. And you see under the tile that water had seeped in behind the shower and rotted out the drywall. So there's just this brown drywall there. So you pick up the drywall a little and that falls off and you see, oh, there's a little bit of rotten wood behind that comes out. And so you have some choices. The choices are, you can pull all the rotten stuff out, purify it, and fix it and make it new, make it better, or you can give it the landlord special and just paint over it, right? Those are like the two options you got. But the right thing to do is, okay, I'm gonna tear out that rotten thing. I'm gonna destroy this thing, even though it's gonna be a pain, even though it's gonna be hard, even though it's gonna be a lot of focused work because it's gonna make it better in the long run because this is what it needs to be. And so Paul, this church has got a lot of problems. And he's saying, I will come and destroy if I need to. If I come and there's rotting people there, if there's people who are permeating the rest of the group, the good people, and it's causing them to become rotten, I'll pull them out. Because if you leave wood rot, it's just going to spread. If you leave a leaky area, it's just going to keep spreading. And Paul is saying, okay, I can come and I can tear out what's rotten. I can remove it and I can rebuild. There are people at this church who are rotten. They're putting people against Paul. They're doing friendly fire. There's nothing more lame for a church to do than friendly fire, than attack Christians, especially when we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against a true enemy. How much more does he love it when you fight other Christians? You're fighting people on your team. He loves that. Paul is saying that's completely anti the gospel. It's completely anti what we're going to do. And right now they have a choice. They can repent. Jesus can make them new. He can renew them. He can purify them. And they can be like, there is no rotten part in them. Jesus has the authority and the power can do that. Or Paul can come and remove them. There's sometimes in yours and my life, there's rotten influences that you and I need to purge. You and I need to say, this isn't healthy for me. I keep hanging around this person, and as I hang around this person, my thought life becomes something that I don't like, that we end up talking and thinking about things and ruminating on things that cause myself to not keep my thoughts captive, that cause me to, to dwell on things and talk about things that aren't in obedience to Christ. And so I need to purge myself of that. I need to separate myself from this rotting influence for a season because right now it's influencing me in a way that isn't healthy for me. And so verse nine, <clears throat> I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. 
So the accusers of Paul say, this guy writes really well-formed, strong letters full of weight, but when he's here, he's tiny, he's unimpressive, he does not speak well. I mean, when you think of the Apostle Paul, we don't really have a description of him in the Bible. You have some extra descriptions that you can kind of get some different ideas. He's got a unibrow, apparently. He's got kind of a squeaky voice. I personally like to picture him as Danny DeVito because I think that's fun. So you got Danny DeVito, you just picture that. Like that guy's coming to your church and telling you what, it's okay, are we gonna listen to this guy? Like that's, they're, they're, that's what the people are doing. They're saying, we're really gonna listen to that guy? The guy whose hair's all crazy, the can't even grow nothing right here, he's got a unibrow. That part we do, I'm pretty sure no. Are we gonna listen to him, really? And then on top of that, it's not only just the way that he looks, but it's also the way that he speaks. He is not very well spoken, apparently. And Paul did that on purpose. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter two that he's chosen to not put together any great lengthy sermons. I'm just gonna talk about what I know, which is Christ and Christ crucified, because that's what really matters. That's what has the power to transform people. That's all I'm gonna speak on. And for the Corinthians who were raised in a culture where the grand philosophers were those people that you would aspire to listen to and, and hear all their philosophies and hear their, their big weighty words and long trails of thought, they're like, man, this guy isn't, it's no TED talk. You know, like, we could probably get someone in here with a little more pizzazz and get this church really going is what some of the wolves in Corinth were probably saying. He's not a great speaker, able to convince someone of his argument, important thing. He's not a big thinker, but it's, it's I'm gonna talk about Christ and Christ crucified. They were making fun of his appearance and his speech. Do you and I judge people based on appearance? All of the time all of the time. Here's the craziest study that they did. They took students at a university and had them rate the attractiveness of their professors. I don't even know how you get away with that, <clears throat> but that's what they did. They rated their attractiveness, and then they took that data and they put it in order of those who were rated the most attractive to the least, and it was perfectly accurate to those who got paid the most to the least. How crazy is that? Those who were considered more attractive, they made more money. So I'm gonna to go to the elders and say, what's the deal, guys? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> clearly, clearly. <laughs> I get smited for that. <laughs> no, but that's crazy. We definitely make judgment calls based off of how people look. It, on average, those who are taller, if you're above the, the average height, you tend to make more money. It equals out to be $1,000 per year per inch over the average. That's a crazy statistic. But it's because we do that. We, we do judge by outward appearance and we have a God who does not, who often uses people who on outward appearance don't turn out, don't look like the person we would expect. So in the Old Testament, you have David's son, whose name is Absalom. And Absalom is the dude that you would expect to be a king. He's the only person in the Bible who's described as from the bottom of his foot to the top of his head, he is perfect. Which just a crazy thing in description. He is the perfect human man. And everyone looked at him and said, I want that guy to be my king. Okay, he's a terrible mistake of a king, completely disobedient to his father and disobedient to God. But then you have his dad, David. Whereas when David was going to be anointed to be king, God tells his prophet, hey, go find my king. He's gonna be here, one of Jesse's sons. And he gets completely overlooked because, oh, that can't be the guy. 
That guy would never be king. Are you kidding me? There's no way. There's no chance. God judges by the heart where you and I so often will judge by outward appearance. I think it's really important that you and I remember that God, our God, is able to see stuff that you and I cannot see. And the position that you and I are supposed to have is not supposed to be people who judge and give value to others, but we're supposed to look at them as image bearers of God and say, my God knows your heart. My God knows what you're doing. My God has plans for you. And that's what the Corinthians, these wolves are missing out on. They're thinking there's no way Paul could possibly be the guy. Danny DeVito, are you kidding me? There's no way. In verse 11, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. They'll see. They won't, if they don't believe me, they're going to see when I get here. This totally reminds me of my mom saying, if you continue, you're going to be in so much trouble when we get home. <laughs> Anyone ever get that talk from their mom? When it works, it's brilliant. I've overused it with my kids, and they're like, yeah, all right. Verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. We can get really deceived when we compare ourselves to other people. I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I know I'm doing things that I'm not supposed to be doing, but man, I'm way better off than that guy. I mean, apart from Jesus, that's really your whole spiritual thinking. Hey, I'm better than these people, so when I see God, I mean, I'm probably better than 50% of the population as far as my niceness goes, you know? And so you think, well, you know, if God's gonna put me on this divine scales and weigh me against all the bad people have ever been and all the good people have ever been, I'm, I'm probably, probably right in there, probably within the, bound, the bell curve of goodness and God will probably let me in. Outside of Jesus, that's really your thought and thinking. I'm a pretty good person. You know, I didn't kill a lot of people. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Hitler. I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm somewhere right in the middle, probably more on this side. You know, and that's, that's the thinking. When we compare ourselves to other, we measure ourselves by one another, we are without understanding. The standard is not your neighbor who cannot put their dogs away and has trash all over their yard. That's not the standard that you're judged against. The standard is not Mother Teresa who did a lot of beautiful, amazing things for orphans and those who are in need. The standard is Jesus. The standard is so incomparably high that you could never, ever reach it. In fact, when Jesus is telling his disciples where the standard is, he says, you would have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which those are people who spent all day, every day, ruminating on God's word, trying to keep the law and be completely obedient to God. And you're saying that my obedience would have to exceed theirs. Oh my gosh, how can I do that? Supposed to get you to this point where you just go, there's nothing I can do to do it. And then I think Jesus goes, you nailed it. There's nothing you could do to do it. There's nothing you can do that could earn your salvation. You should never be weighing yourself against different people because where you weigh is with filthy rags. All of your righteousness, all of your best works is as filthy rags, stuff that God doesn't want. That's your righteousness. 
And so when we compare ourselves to other people, we're completely disregarding the gospel because the whole point of the gospel is to tell you and me, there's nothing I could ever do to earn salvation. I I was completely lost and on my own and without hope, but God in his mercy and his kindness and his gentleness pulled me out of that, out of no work of my own, but out of all of his work. And now because of the work of Jesus on the cross, freely by grace, I'm able to be accepted into God's family and receive life and life abundantly in him. And now I don't compare myself to other people because if anything, I'm worse. Like Paul, when he says, I'm the chief of all sinners, that should be the attitude of the believer. Oh my gosh, I'm worse than you could ever imagine. But because of Jesus, what's been granted to me, when God looks at me, he sees me as being perfect and righteous and pure and holy. That I've got a God now who Hebrews says, which is a phenomenal text, that God forgets your iniquity. Talk about taking a thought captive. Your sins, God willfully chooses to not remember them anymore. They've been paid for on the cross. God does not label you for them or keep an account and go, man, Justin keeps on doing that thing. He got a Red Bull again. He doesn't do that list. He forgets it. He wipes it clean like it never happened, like it's no more, like it was never true. And now when I stand before God, I have Jesus's righteousness upon me. And so weighing ourselves to other people doesn't gain you anything, doesn't benefit you anything. It makes you look like a fool. And that's what Paul is saying about these people. You need more than you could ever imagine. You'd have to exceed even the best and no one could ever meet that standard without Jesus. Verse 13, but we will not boast beyond limits but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. So there's an area of influence that God had given over to Paul. Paul was come to establish this church, to build up this church, to correct it, to rebuke it, to praise it for what it's doing well, to set it on its way so that it could be a city on a hill and the people who come to Corinth could come and be saved and, and have this thriving place where God's people come together to praise him and spread truth. And he's passionate about it. Paul's gonna fight for this area of influence that God has given him. And Paul has been faithful in this area. And so God's going to continue to give increase. And as Paul's going to have tons of hard conversations, and as Paul has hard conversations with people and writes hard letters, God is going to do his work on the recipient's heart to begin to change their heart to be receiving what Paul has to say to them. And there's seasons, I'm sure for Paul, where he's in between writing letters where he's just like, man, this, this Corinthian church just isn't working out. These people aren't listening to me. They're not receiving me. There's people that are actively against me. There's intense emotional messages of correction in these letters, but he knows, okay, this is the area God has called me to. He's, he's pulled me here, put me in charge of this, and I'm gonna continue to press on towards what God has set my influence over. For you and me, God has an area of influence that you and I are supposed to be running in, that you and I are supposed to be mindful of, that just like Paul does. It's something that God has uniquely gifted each of us to engage in, to be around in, to speak truth in, that we have an area of influence assigned to us by God. And so I had someone I really respect. They came to me in the kids' wing, 
and the kids were just going crazy. We're in the 4K class, and they wanted to talk to me about something. And there's these kids just going wild. And there is one four-year-old who is speaking dinosaur to me. It's a language that we teach on Tuesday nights. And he was speaking fluent dinosaur. And I was like, yeah, man, that is awesome. And then the kid ran off. And this person I really respect goes, man, I could not do this. Like, this is the worst thing in the world to me. And I'm like, this is the best time of my life. Like, this is so fun. I get to play with kids and talk to them about Jesus. And then I'm explaining just the economy of heaven to them. I'm like, Jesus says he remembers if you give a glass of water to a kid. Dude, I'm rolling in it right now. Like, you have no idea. I don't stop at water. I'm doing goldfish. I'm doing animal crackers. I mean, I'm getting after it, all right? <laughs> like, for me, that's just my area of influence. It's so fun for me. It's, it's almost effortless for me. That's just the area I feel like God has called me to and I'm flourishing in it and I'm, I love it. It is, it is exciting. I look forward to it. I plan about it all year. I'll write books for it. I, that is my area of influence. I'm passionate about it. I'll fight for it. For all of us, there is areas of influence that God has given to you and me that we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to be passionate about it, fight for it. I'm gonna bring God's kingdom here. And it might not be the kid's wing, though it should be. It could be all sorts of different areas. It could even be in your own home. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be your neighbor. It could be your employees. It could be your boss. We all have areas of influence that God has assigned to us where we're supposed to represent him well. And that means being passionate about what God has called you to. And it also means having the super hard conversations and trusting that God is gonna work on that person's heart. That means going through seasons sometimes where things are really hard and frustrating and difficult and going like, man, I just feel like no one is hearing me here and there's wolves talking against me. No, I'm going to press on. God has called me here. God has put me here. I'm going to be faithful in my area of influence, and God is going to give the increase. There's areas of influence that God has entrusted to each and every one of us that we're supposed to pursue with passion and excitedness of, okay, God is going to do a work. I'm just going to continue to be faithful. And so verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. As we continue to grow in Christ together, we want to see our area of influence increase. We want to see God continue to give bigger increase. We want Corinthian, the Corinthian church to have bigger problems and bigger issues, just not these issues. We'll get past these issues and we'll have new issues so that when we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. My seal of approval, Paul says, isn't from man or from what these men say about me. It isn't even from myself and what I think of myself. My seal of approval, I know, comes from God. That when God looks at me, he sees a worker approved. It makes it really hard for those wolves to argue against that. And so for you and me, as we're closing out tonight, I think there's three things that you and I need to remember. That you and I are in a war, a real spiritual battle. That Genesis 1 to Revelation 19, the Bible is clear about there is an enemy who wants to steal and kill and to destroy, to take away from your family, to hurt your kids. And you and I need to be mindful of that. And the single best weapon that you and I have 
is prayer, to bring Jesus into all of those instances in our life where we start to feel things going out of control or becoming frustrating, we need to bring Jesus into that moment. And the sweetest thing you could do is to bring your spouse into it and say, hey, can we pray real quick? So the first thing, we're, we're, we are at war. Second thing is don't forget to pray. Because oftentimes I won't pray until I'm deep into a problem. I'm deep into someone being frustrated with me or my life going upside down. I think we need to be people who are, I'm gonna take every thought captive and be mindful of it and be on top of it. And I'm going to run these things. Jesus, is this true? Is this commendable? Is this excellent? Is this worthy of praise? And run those things through my mind. And then lastly, find your area of influence and pursue it. God has called each and every one of us to have some area of influence where he wants you to bring the gospel, to bring truth, to bring peace, to bring love to. And it could be your spouse. It could be your kids. And that's not any less than teaching in the kid's wing or teaching here. Teaching your kids to love God and love people by itself could be the single greatest thing you ever do. And Jesus will look at that and say, well done. That was hard. Good work. Because it's really, really important and no one else is going to do it but you. And so whatever area of influence that God has entrusted you, it could be your work, it could be your home, it could be here at church, pursue it. Even when it gets hard, even when it gets frustrating, even when it feels like there's wolves in the congregation, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray that God is gonna do work in their hearts, that God's in charge of it, and I'm gonna continue to pursue the area of influence that God has called me to. So Jesus, we're thankful that we get to be called your people. We're thankful that we have access to the king of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, that I can go to you boldly in my time of need and know that I'm not gonna receive condemnation and judgment and wrath and fury, but I'm gonna receive open arms and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Jesus, help me to be mindful that there is a real battle going on and that I can get caught up in the things of this world of money and resources and relationship. Help me to be mindful of there's a real battle and you've called me to a great work. Help us to focus on what you've called us to that we can run the race well without growing weary. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.